Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today um, I have a very special guest with me. I've been uh, talking about this uh, interview for quite some time, and I've had a lot of folks reach out to me, um, uh, whether they were excited or concerned either way, but be that as it may, we are here, um, and it is a pleasure uh, to be having Hank Hanegraaff on, which I'll introduce more formally in just uh, a few moments. Um, for anyone who is interested um, with regards to the specific topic we're going to be talking about, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, first, I'm actually going to be asking a little bit about um, Hank's health. If you guys have been following his ministry, of course, um, he has been um, undergoing uh, various treatments for, um, well, I'm sure he'll go into detail, but I want to make sure he's okay. And uh, I haven't been following it completely. So I'd be interested in seeing how uh, those developments are going. And then we're going to go into the topic of Hank's uh, conversion to Eastern Orthodoxy. And uh, really the primary purpose uh, here is to, um, as I said in my previous live stream, uh, to answer that perplexing question that that always comes up, you know, what's Eastern Orthodoxy? You know, every time people ask me, you know, I, I've asked scholars and apologists and um, the answer is always the same. Well, that's not really my area. I'm not really sure what they believe. And so I thought it'd be a great idea to have um, uh, Hank Hanegraaff on to explain uh, his perspective, his understanding of, of Eastern Orthodox theology. And uh, for educational purposes, uh, perhaps bring some contrast with uh, many of my Protestant listeners. You can see kind of the 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 comparison and contrasting between the views um, and use that as kind of a tool for, for education. And so um, that's really the primary purpose here. And so uh, with that said, um, I'd like to welcome on the screen with me, um, Hank Hanegraaff of CRI, the Christian Research Institute, and he is the, uh, the current Bible Answer Man. So welcome to Revealed Apologetics, Hank. Thank you so much. It is uh, an honor and a pleasure to be with you. All right. Well, um, I want to ask a question. Uh, my first question is, what made you agree to come onto a YouTube channel of someone you've never heard of? <laughs> People are usually very cautious about, you know, like, especially us YouTube types, we can uh, be unpredictable. So uh, what on earth uh, convinced you to come on? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're Reformed, and uh, I come out of a Reformed tradition. Uh, okay. Two of my brother-in-laws are Reformed pastors. Okay. Uh, my father was a Reformed pastor. And uh, so I have been uh, greatly blessed by the Reformed tradition over the years. Uh, R.C. Sproul was one of my closest friends when he was alive. Mm -hmm. uh, we often talked about Reformed theology and uh, other theologies as well uh, when we were playing golf and afterwards. Uh, but uh, the Reformed tradition has had a tremendous impact on my life. My, my mom and dad, they're absent the body, they're present with the Lord, and uh, probably two of the most stunning, stirring examples of people who, who walked the Christian life in an exemplary fashion. And so I have a great uh, admiration for Reformed theologians and uh, for the Reformed faith. Uh, there are many Reformed people that work or have worked with the Christian Research Institute over the years as well. So uh, I did know a little bit about you. I was told about you by various people that uh, had a very high opinion of, of, of both you as a person and your ability as an apologist as well. So I was happy to come on when you invited me. 
Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I would have loved to be a, a fly on the wall uh, in some of your informal discussions with, uh, with RC. Um, I'm sure uh, you guys had some interesting conversations. Um, these kind of discussions. Well, he, was, can- uh, he was one, Eli, he was one of the greatest people I, I ever met. Uh, he was the absolute real deal. Uh, there, there was no pretenses about RC. And okay. so while we did not always agree, uh, I had the deepest admiration for, for him as a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm sure these kinds of discussions can kind of get very excitable. So I, I would imagine <laughs> you guys would have some interesting, uh, probably ruin your golf swing. <laughs> Someone's arguing Romans 9 or something like that. Uh, that must have been uh, pretty exciting. Um, all right. Well, just a, a, another kind of a preemptive question. Um, those who have been following your ministry, maybe people who don't know, you have been um, going through some health issues. And um, my, my question is, how are you doing? How is that um, coming along? Well, thank you so much for asking that question, Eli. I was uh, diagnosed with stage four uh, mantle cell lymphoma, uh, right. August, uh, excuse me, um, April 15 of 2017. And uh, so I started chemotherapy, and I went into remission a number of times, but the tumors kept coming back. And finally, mm-hmm. this past year, uh, I had a uh, what's called an allergenic transplant. I received the, the stem cells of one of my sons. I have 12 children. Uh, and one of my sons donated his stem cells, and that seems to have done... Uh, the the job because uh, from that time on I've been cancer free so there's no no sign whatsoever of the mantle cell lymphoma. While I was going through the transplant itself, though, I I almost died a couple of times. Mm. So last year uh, I, I I faced my own mortality in a very very specific way. In fact, while I was in the hospital, I got an E. coli bacterium uh, that almost killed me, put me in a coma. And uh, when I came out of that coma, one of the things that really touched me and, and, and never left me is what the Lord would say about what I've done for the least of these, the poor and the downtrodden. And so my emphasis in many ways has become, what can I do uh, for the least of these? And, and some of those people are in various parts of the world. For example, the Dalits who are also known as the untouchables. They, they live in India. There are some uh, 300 million of them. And they're outside of the caste system. Uh, they're outcasts, literally. They can't touch the water uh, from the wells of those who are in the caste system. And the Muslims and the Buddhists are making an extensive effort uh, to proselytize them. Uh, but we, with the love of Christ and meeting the needs of those people, uh, can can have a tremendous impact in that area of the world. And so mm. uh, these things have stuck with me as a result of facing my my own mortality. Okay. But, you're, but you said you're cancer-free at, at, the, at the time, right now? I am. There's no sign whatsoever of the mantle okay. cell lymphoma. Uh, and uh, for that, I'm deeply grateful. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously grateful for uh, people all around the world who prayed for me uh, during this time. And uh, as a result of uh, being cancer-free right now, I've had the opportunity to see two new grandchildren uh, born in the last year that I wouldn't have seen otherwise, and uh, also privileged to continue 
uh, carrying on the work of the Lord uh, through the ministry of the Christian Research Institute and and throughout uh, other outlets as well. So, so Hank, uh, twelve children. I mean, that's it's very biblical of you. <laughs> that's, that's all I can't imagine. Uh, that's that's pretty impressive. Well, uh, we had nine natural children, Eli, and then we okay. we adopted three children as well. So that's how okay. we got to the number twelve. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, all right, well, well, let's jump right in. Um, what I appreciated about uh, the fact that you agreed to come on was that through our contact, um, I believe it was Stephen. Um, uh, he expressed to me that that you had no no issue with me uh, being clear as to where I stand uh, with Eastern Orthodoxy, and that was something very much that I that I uh, respect. Um, it is my position, um, unlike say someone like yourself and and Walter Martin um, and even Cindy um, held to the position that she sees uh, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church as true churches, but with grave error. Um, and I'm not of that position. I, I, and it is my position that the Roman Catholic church does not have a saving gospel with regards to its official teaching. That's just my position. I know people differ there. That's where I stand. I think there are some dividing line issues and the same with, with Eastern Orthodoxy. Now that said, um, what I try to do on my channel, and I think this is something that you could appreciate is that even if we, um, land on those dividing line issues as kind of like, we've kind of drawn the line in the sand, so to speak. That does not mean that communication between different perspectives can't be had. There can still be meaningful discussion, learning from one another, as First Peter chapter three verse fifteen says, with gentleness and respect. And so it's with that spirit. Um, that's uh, I've told people that I don't agree with Eastern Orthodoxy, but I want to learn more about it. I just know enough about it that I don't agree with it, but I still want to learn more, and I think that's still useful. So all that to say, um, I appreciate that um, you agreed to come on, even if I was going to kind of bring that out, because I know a lot of people uh, tend to, you know, move away from coming down hard on those issues. So I just wanted to share from the perspective I was coming from before we got started. Appreciate that. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. So um, let's go through uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. One of the questions that I get all the time is what on earth is Eastern Orthodoxy? A lot of people think that Eastern Orthodoxy is just a is just a, a popeless version of, of Roman Catholicism. And to be perfectly honest, that was my perspective before I kind of read a little bit into the Eastern Orthodox Church and theology. Uh, but how would you define for folks, um, just as that bare question, what is Eastern Orthodoxy? Well, you know, the first thing I would say, Eli, is that if you look at church history, and a lot of people do not have any kind of working knowledge of church history, there was a time when the church was young. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a time when you had a tradition being passed along from our Lord to the apostles, to the apostolic fathers, to the great early church apologists, to the pre, the post Nicene Fathers, and then sure. to every Eucharistic assembly throughout the land. And this was the one church, and that existed for the first thousand years of church history. So up until 1054, the Great Schism, as it's called, there was only one church. Uh, the, the Great Schism divided the East and the West, and then 500 years later, there was a second great schism. And that schism was between Rome and the Reformers, or the Reformers and Rome. Uh, so there are schisms that took place in the church, but prior to those schisms, the church 
was young. Mm -hmm. The church held to the dogmas of the seven ecumenical councils, and that's why oftentimes I say Eastern Orthodoxy is the church of the seven ecumenical councils. They don't add anything to it. They don't subtract anything from it. And I think what's also very important to recognize about Eastern Orthodoxy is it's not innovative. It's seeking to perpetuate the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So again, it's not seeking to be innovative, but perpetuate the faith. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a very important point because there was a time in which the stream was unpolluted. Uh, a friend of mine oftentimes tells the story about when he was a boy in India, he used to climb a bamboo tree and jump into the clear water of a river, being able to see the bottom of that river. He says he now goes back to that same place and he can't see the bottom of the river because it's polluted. But if you take a canoe or a kayak and you go to the headwaters or the origin of that river, the waters are still unpolluted. And that, in my estimation, is a good depiction of what Eastern Orthodoxy is. I mean, from the time of the Reformation, there has been tremendous pollution of the Christian stream. I mean, you think about what happened with respect to Zwingli and Luther. Luther believed in the real presence of Christ. Zwingli believed that Luther's belief in the real presence of Christ constituted bread worship. So what happened? They had a debate, a very famed debate. And Zwingli asked Luther how Christ could be really present in the Eucharist, in the Thanksgiving meal. He said, how's that possible? And Luther's response was telling, he said, if you can tell me how Christ can be one person with two natures, I'll tell you how Christ can really be present in the Eucharist. In other words, Luther was saying what the Eastern Orthodox Church has always said, this is a mystery. To use a Latin phrase, it's the mysterium tremendum et fiscinans. It's the mystery that causes us to tremble and yet attracts us. So the church did not innovate early on, but from the time of Zwingli on, there was all kinds of innovations. The stream kept getting more and more polluted. So I like to think of Eastern Orthodoxy as when the church was young. And this is what Eastern Orthodoxy seeks to perpetuate uh, in the present uh, without any innovation. Okay. Now, uh, there are a couple of things there that I, I guess would pique the interest of some Protestant folks and just people who are interested in church history. And what I appreciated, I don't remember the, the talk you had, but uh, uh, there was a, a talk you had, I watched it on YouTube, where you admitted that um, – uh, the knowledge of church history prior to the Reformation is something that we all have difficulty. I mean, a lot of us remember back to the Reformation, and some have even jokingly said, you know, modern evangelicals, they only go far as back as, uh, you know, Billy Graham. You know, we're not very much in touch with um, church history prior to the, to the Reformation. But there is, um, there is great debate, um, especially with regards to what constitutes 
uh, a tradition that has a genuine apostolic connection. So you have the different divergent views between uh, the Orthodox view and the Roman Catholic view. And then, of course, the Protestant view, which which says, um, uh, well, let's go back to scripture. And then you have that sola scriptura issue. So why don't you speak to that? And, and you can maybe correct me if I've said something that that was off. Um, well, what's up with this tradition? I mean, you said that there's an unpolluted tradition within the Eastern Orthodox perspective. But then me being naive of the details of church history, which is something I, I want to look into, I see uh, in the Western church, <laughs> I see, I activated Siri when I said that. Um, I see the West, <laughs> I see the Western church um, that promotes a papal infallibility and all these things that they try to argue that it's part, part of the purity of apostolic tradition. And then you have the Eastern church, which says, well, no, we're, we're preserving that. What's going on there? How do you differentiate between the two uh, from your perspective? Well, the first thing that I would say, Eli, with all due respect, is that sure. the reformers in Rome have more in common than Rome does with, with the orthodoxy. Uh, sure. th there are many huge differences between Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. So the the idea that Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism uh, see eye to eye on substantial issues, I think, is uh, is simply uh, not factual. The other thing that I would say with respect to your question on tradition is that if you look at Scripture, Scripture tells us that the church is the ground and the pillar of truth. It is the church that gave us sacred Scripture. I mean, if you look at the early church, there was no New Testament canon up until the time of the festal letter of Athanasius the Great in 367. Mm -hmm. uh, and even then, that was just the start of codifying the New Testament canon. So for many years, the letters that were circulated in the church were very different than the canon that we have today. And by the way, and this is a bit of a tangent, this is a problem that Protestants have. If you... Uh, look at any Protestant Bible or virtually any Protestant Bible, uh, you have the Masoretic text in the Old Testament and you have the Septuagint being quoted in the New Testament. So, for example, if you look at the Jerusalem Council, uh, Amos chapter 9 is quoted. Well, if you look at the Septuagint, it coheres with the quotation in the New Testament, but if you look at the Palestinian text, it does not. And there are many examples like that. So it is the church that preserved sacred tradition, the epitome of which is the Bible, which I love. I've spent most of my uh, ministry and most of my adult life uh, mining the Scripture, memorizing the Scripture, meditating on the Scripture. So I have a high view of Scripture, but I think it's important to recognize that it is the Church that gave us the Scriptures. Now, okay, so, I mean, coming from a Protestant perspective, um, I mean, I that's guess, no small point. Uh, well, of course, yeah. And I mean, this is going to be, uh, I mean, this is a very big difference in point of, of discussion with the issue of uh you know, how we got the canon of scripture. I mean, wouldn't you say though, that the canon was completed the very moment the uh, person wrote the 
particular book. I mean, isn't it the case, wouldn't you say, that the church recognizes the canon, not so much gives us the canon? Well, and the church actually gave us the canon. Um, I mean, there were, there were books that were used in the church uh, that were bound together. Uh, Clement was bound together with Corinthians in the early church. These were letters that were circulated in the church. It was the church that gave us ultimately, uh, that codified the canon and gave us the canon. But codifying, do you mean collecting it under one, uh, you know, kind of cover? Or, I mean, no, surely... ascertaining we... that these are the canonical books. Uh, and, 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 and I mentioned earlier what I thought was a tangent, uh, a, maybe a tangent, but probably isn't, mm. because uh, there's also a whole discussion as to uh, whether there's a longer canon in the Old Testament or mm. whether that longer canon doesn't belong in, in the Old Testament. So there are a lot of issues that have to be parsed out there as well. But it was the church that determined uh, the canon. Uh, there were many other books that could have been added to the canon, and they're very edifying to read. I mean, if you look at the Didache, for example, the Didache is edifying, it's instructional, it's important, but it's not included in the canon. Uh, Clement's epistle is not included in the canon. So there was a determination made at a particular point in time as to what was canonical and what was not. That happened in church history. Well, I'm confused. I'm confused then. I, I, was always, I was under the impression that God gave us the canon and the church recognized the canon. So not so much that the church gives us the canon, right? Well, but that recognition, maybe there's a, a problem here with the words that we're using. Sure. Okay, so uh, Athanasius the Great, I'll go with your language, recognizes 27 books mm -hmm. of the New Testament, and they're first codified as a coherent whole in 367. Now, 367, are you referring to Athanasius' festal letter? Yes. Okay, so wouldn't it be the case, though, that the books that he's listed there are recognized as canonical prior to his listing them, right? I mean, it wasn't as though Athanasius was giving a declaration as these are the official books. I mean, these were already accepted by the church. It's in my understanding, of course, that these were accepted as canonical. It's just later on you have them kind of placed together under one cover and kind of, quote, officially like these are the ones. But I mean, I well, it wasn't was, even official then, because okay. if you look at the Old Testament, uh, the festal letter, as you well know, since you've referenced it, the festal mm -hmm. letter didn't include certain uh, books from the Old Testament, like Esther, that we include today. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, so so your, the Eastern Orthodox position, if I can understand you correctly, is that the church gave us the canon. Okay. Um, that would be your position, right? Oh. Yes, that a holy okay. tradition gave us the Word of God, and that the Church is the ground and the pillar of truth. So the mm -hmm. Holy Spirit working through the Church, through apostolic succession, gives us that which is true. And so we recognize the canon as being true, and I'm making the qualification that the canon uh, for uh, the Orthodox is different than the canon for a Protestant Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, Luther included the longer canon. Well, why don't you? Why don't you uh, take a moment? I in apologize. His translation. 
Sure, sure. Why don't uh, why don't you take a, a moment to kind of um, mention some of the books that are included in the Eastern Orthodox canon that are not included in the Protestant canon? I think that'd be useful for people who aren't aware of these issues. Well, you can just look at the index. I mean, there are books like Tobit. Uh, there are books like the Wisdom of Sirach. Uh, there, 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 there are all kinds of uh, books that are there. There are forty six okay. books as opposed to. Uh, 39 books in mm -hmm. the Orthodox canon, and there are parts yeah. of books as well that are included. You have Maccabees, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees. So okay. there are many books that are included in the Old Testament canon. They're part of the Septuagint, and they're referenced in the New Testament, sometimes indirectly, but nonetheless uh, they're, they're referenced, and uh, but the biggest part of this is the fact that they're part of the Septuagint. Mm. So now, okay, so from a Protestant perspective, and this usually comes up between the context of, and you're spot on with regards to uh, Protestants and Catholics having more of that connection than, than the Eastern Church, um, but to the Protestant sensibilities, when, when we observe what goes on oftentimes in Roman Catholic churches and Eastern Orthodox churches, there is a lot that uh, Protestant sensibilities will say, Ooh, where is that in the Bible? So, so why don't you talk a little bit about the Eastern Orthodox perspective with regards to um, why when a Protestant uh, visits an Eastern Orthodox church and listens to some of the teaching and theology, they will hear things that kind of I'm joking around makes Protestants break out in hives. There seems to be things that are inconsistent uh, to the Protestant, to Protestant ears. Why don't you explain uh, why that's the case and go into the reasons why that's not a big deal, or maybe I'm representing the issues incorrectly. Uh, why don't you unpack that for us? Yeah. Well, I think it's a really good question, Eli. I, I think when you go to an Orthodox church, when you walk through the church doors, uh, you immediately recognize that you're there to worship God. Uh, the liturgy in an Orthodox church bathes you in the Word of God. In fact, if you follow the liturgical calendar, you're steeped in Scripture. And I think that's a okay. big, big difference from modern-day evangelicalism, where oftentimes the Bible is, is used as a point of departure. And many people that carry Bibles have never really read the Bible or memorized the Bible or mined the Bible for all its substantial worth. Mm -hmm. So in orthodoxy, you get absolutely washed in the Word of God. And the focus is always on worshiping God. It's not about an extravaganza. For, for orthodoxy, the church is the center of the universe, and the center of the liturgy. In fact, the liturgy is the Eucharist. So when we in orthodoxy partake of the Eucharist, we're partaking of the real presence of Christ. So we're being, we're being transformed through the graces that are partaken of within the context of the church. So for an Orthodox person, this is not going to church, this is embracing a whole life, a life that's transformational. So in Western theology, the ark typically runs from fall to redemption. In Orthodoxy, the ark runs from creation to deification, as Vladimir Lossky put it. Uh, if you look at the history of the human race, it's a history of shipwreck, awaiting rescue. 
But as Lasky put it, the port of salvation is not the goal. The goal is for the rescued to continue on a journey whose sole goal is union with God. In other words, to become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, to be infused with the divine nature. And this is precisely uh, what we talk about when we talk about grace. Grace is partaking of the living God. And so you can imagine by way of illustration that if you're in a shipwreck and you're saved from the raging waters, you're going to be very, very grateful. But you don't want to stay in the port of salvation. Mm. And in Eastern Orthodoxy, you continue on a journey whose sole goal is union with God. Mm. So there's a sense in which Eastern Orthodoxy is not just punctiliar. It's a process where you go, as Paul put it, from one glory to another glory with unveiled face. So it is a life transformational journey. And so uh, the Orthodox say, uh, I'm saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. And I'm being transformed, becoming godlike by receiving the graces which are partaken of within the church life. The chief of those graces being, as I just articulated, uh, the Eucharist. Mm. Now, you mentioned a term there that I think is uh, pops up in discussions um, with Eastern Orthodox folks, the term deification. Why don't you unpack that a little bit in, in a little more detail? What is that in a way that perhaps a Protestant uh, it would be helpful for them to understand? Yeah, it, 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 his, his kenosis, we're talking about Christ, mm -hmm. his, his emptying becomes our filling. So when we're talking about deification, we're talking about what Peter talked about when he said we could become partakers of the divine nature or participate in the divine nature. So in orthodoxy, we're not just saved from sin, we're saved for sonship, to become divine sons and daughters of the king. We never become what God is in terms of his essence, but we can partake of his energies and those energies transform us. So by way of an analogy, you can think of the sun. Uh, you can never attain to the center of the sun. Trying so would be deadly. But you can certainly be impacted by the rays of the sun. And in the analogy, God is present in each ray. And those rays transform us. And the whole idea in orthodoxy is to be transformed. So if you look at Eastern Orthodox anthropology, God creates man good, but not perfect. Mm. God creates man in such a way that he can ascend up the paradisical mountain and forever eat from the tree of life, which is at the apex of the Edenic Garden. Well, man stops halfway up and wants to become a god on his own terms. He's expelled from the garden. So now 
humanity can no longer partake of the tree of life. But God has set another tree of life on the fulcrum of history. And that tree of life bears the Eucharistic bounty. It is the cross. And it is through Jesus Christ that the triple barrier that separates us from God is broken. The barrier of nature by the incarnation of Christ. The barrier of sin by the death of Christ. And the barrier of death itself by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the whole idea between or in, in the system of orthodoxy is becoming not only what we're created as an icon of God, but becoming more and more godlike by partaking of the energies of God, and maybe you can use another word for that, the graces that God dispenses within the ground and the pillar of truth, which is the church, the center now, of the universe and orthodoxy. Now, I have heard this often, and I don't know um, the terminology, essence and energy. I've often been asked about the essence and energy distinction. What, what is that specifically within an Eastern Orthodox context? I, I've heard it. You've alluded to it. Um, but uh, what is it exactly? Well, yeah, we, we, it's what I was talking about before, Eli. You can never attain to the essence of God. God is unknowable okay. in his essence. But he is knowable in his energies. And it is those energies that are the graces that we're talking about. So we believe that we're saved by God's grace. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the Orthodox Church is not a works-centered theology. Say, um, say, that again. say that again, I'm sorry. It's, it's not a works-centered theology. Uh, so, so I mean, the, you, you have to get over the language barrier here because the language of the Orthodox and the language of the, the Western Church, the Roman Catholics, and, 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 and the Protestants is very, very different language. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes you have to uh, learn to scale the language barrier there. But uh, the, the Orthodox, uh, I mean, if you look at the Orthodox study Bible uh, at Ephesians chapter 2, um, you know, the, the great passage, for by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If you look at all three of those verses, uh, verses, you see grace, faith, and works. But here's what the Orthodox Study Bible says. How can one get from one kingdom to the other? By the unity of grace, faith, and works. Not that these are equal, for grace is uncreated and infinite, whereas our faith is limited and can grow. Good works flow out of authentic faith. Works, however, cannot earn us this great treasure. It is a pure gift. And those who receive this gift do good. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. See, right, if you there, look, right there, if I could... That? It can interject yep. there. That sounds very Protestant-ish. I mean, I, I mean, I, I hold to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and I often say that I'm not good. I'm not saved by my good works, but a good works is the good works that I that I do are evidence of a genuine faith. Um, so, yep. what is what is the? Um, and I apologize if this question kind of throws off uh, throws you off track as to your line of. No, no, you're not throwing me off track. Off it's fine. Is that? Um, what is the position then of the Eastern Orthodox perspective on the doctrine of justification by faith alone? Because what we hear from Roman Catholics, what we hear from Eastern Orthodoxy sounds like 
a works-based system, even though they don't flat out say, yes, we're saved by our works. It seems that it is the implications of the perspective. Uh, but what, what's your stance on justification by faith alone? What's the Eastern Orthodox stance on justification by faith alone? Well, it, it, exactly what I just said and read. You know, I, I was just I was just going to say in this regard, if you if you turn to James chapter uh, two, okay, um, James parses it out very very well. And in essence, what James is saying is we have to nurture our faith in God, nurture our love for him through, through our works. And that's why James says that um, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead, says James. Right. And then he uses Rahab and Abraham uh, to illustrate why faith without works is dead. So the kind of faith uh, that we're talking about here, and, and I'm not distinguishing this from, from you in any sense, but the kind of faith we're talking about is the faith of Abraham. I mean, Abraham's faith was not mere intellectual assent. Sure. Uh, Abraham trusted God. So it wasn't just hearing and saying, I believe, but Abraham packed up his tents, left Ur the Chaldees, and went to a land he did not know anything about. Sure. He trusted God. So faith is trusting. It's not only knowing and agreeing, but it is putting your whole trust in God. And that's why James can say, faith without works is dead. And then say, that Abram was called a friend of God, you see then that a man is justified by works, says James, and not by faith alone. Mm -hmm. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Now, in the Western church, there's a big debate between uh, the Roman Catholics and the evangelicals, or the Reformers and Rome, uh, because... The whole idea of justification is understood in juridical terms. Mm -hmm. That debate is not the same debate that the Eastern Orthodox are involved in. They were never involved in any of this. They never juxtapositioned faith and works one against the other. It was a foreign thought to them. But I don't think it's the Protestant view that they're pitted against each other. If No, no, I'm saying the Protestants and the Reformers, or Rome and the Reformers, were pitted against each other in a debate on how faith relates to works. And right. I'm saying that in the Eastern Church, there was never, ever a juxtaposition of one against the other. It was simply understood from a biblical perspective. Well, I mean, well, that would be the point of, of contention if that is, uh, because what you're saying, what I heard you say, if I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds very much, um, <laughs> someone in the comment, why am I still a Calvinist? <laughs> People in the comment section. Um, the, the question uh, that that I'm wondering is what you were saying with regards to James chapter two, I, as a Protestant, I'm saying yes and amen. I don't, I don't see the distinction between the Protestant understanding uh, and the Eastern Orthodox understanding based upon what you said. In your estimation, then, what differentiates? I mean, I, I agree with James that um, you're not justified by faith uh, um, alone, 
but you know, he, he kind of brings the distinction with, with, with works there. Protestants have a paradigm for understanding that. I'm not sure I have distinguished your thoughts on that from the Protestant view. Cause a lot of what you said, if I'm understanding you correctly, I can say, sure. I have no problem with that as a, as a, um, as a Protestant. You understand my question? I do. And it's a good question. And I think this is a, a really difficult thing to parse out unless you understand an overall framework. Sure. And that's what I've been trying to communicate. You have to understand a whole overall framework and you have to be able to scale the language barrier and you have to understand what salvation is. Mm -hmm. uh, salvation, as I said earlier, is not just being saved from sin, but it's being saved for sonship. Uh, so you have to look at the larger framework of creation to deification. So the port of salvation is not the goal. The goal is for the saved to continue on a journey. So when we talk about salvation, we're not talking about it in punctiliar terms. We're talking about it as a process. Now, it is true that when an Orthodox person is baptized, or when a person is baptized as an Orthodox Christian, uh, they have renounced the world, they've renounced the devil and his kingdom, and then they're baptized, and they enter into a life of repentance. At baptism, they're forgiven, they're washed, they're cleansed, they're united with Christ, they're incorporated into the church, and their temple becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there is a point in time, or there is a sense of a punctiliar nature to Orthodox salvation, but then you begin a process. And that process always takes place within a context, and that context is the church. And that's why the Orthodox say, uh, you cannot have God as your father without having the church as your mother, because it is in the church that you receive the graces that transform you. So it isn't just this idea of fall to redemption. It is the broader arch that I was talking about earlier from creation to deification. And that's an ongoing process, meaning that you will never come to an end of that process, either in this life or in the life that is to come. In eternity, we will continue to grow in the graces. Now, we are going to learn and grow and develop, albeit without error, but we're never going to be static. We're going to continue to become more and more like God. Again, not like God in his essence. We're not talking sure. about Mormonism. Sure. We're, we're not talking about Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Uh, we're not talking about aberrations. Uh, we're not talking about Kenneth Copen, Co Copeland, uh, but we're talking about the energies of God as opposed to the essence of God. So let, let me give you an illustration that the early church one, one used for. I do about. Yeah. Um, so, so, but what you're saying there sounds a lot to me like sanctification. Again, the language that you're using sounds. <laughs> Very That's a brilliant observation. That I, a, truly a brilliant observation. Because here, here's the problem, and you just put your finger right on it. Uh, the language systems oftentimes encompass many of the same ideologies. Okay, it's different language, 
But the language is driving at some of the same points. And that's why I said earlier on, Eli, you have to learn to scale the language barrier because the language of the East is very different from the language of the West. Um, you know, the, the language of the East is more Christ victor. Mm -hmm. uh, the language of the West is more Christ victim. Not uh, uh, completely so, uh, but 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 in terms of emphasis, the emphasis in the Eastern Church is that sin is a sickness, and there's a cure for the sickness. The language, as you know, in the Western Church is far different from that. So I, I, I think this gets at how important it is to scale the language barrier. And, and, and I think a brilliant response on your part is that, yeah, I mean, uh, Protestants talk about justification, but that's not all they talk about. They also talk about sanctification. I think that's a, a yeah. very appropriate comment. I guess um, you, I would 100% agree that we, we do need to scale the language barrier. By the way, a little commercial for those who've never read uh, Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin, there's an entire section on scaling the language barrier, and that's not just in relation to the cults. That's in relation to any kind of communication where people are coming from different perspectives. So there is definitely a language barrier to be crossed to sh for sure. And, um, and by the way, you mentioned Walter Martin. Walter Martin believed that the Roman Catholic Church was a true church. That's right. With significant error. Right. And, uh, and I, I would agree with that. Right. And I, I disagreed with his position there. Uh, but again, that's just a distinction uh, between um, between myself and, and uh, yourself and, and Dr. Martin. Um, but when you speak of the fall and redemption but that it goes back to creation and deification. Um, and it seems to suggest that that is the position and emphasis of the Western church. I guess then we have to be more distinct with regards to what we mean by the Western church, because a lot of the ways that you have just in passing, I mean, you're just, you were having a conversation here, so I'm sure precision could be, uh, there can be more precision in what you're saying. Um, but I've never heard the, the Western emphasis that, that you have described as something within the reformed context. So I've never heard from fall to redemption. I, I hear from creation right, the, right at the beginning, God has a decree. He has plans to make a covenant. It's unfolding, you know, the process of salvation, the issue of justification and sanctification. Um, I believe those. Well, Eli, I was trying to be precise because I, yeah. you know, what, what, what I, what, what I'm saying is it has to do with Eastern Orthodox anthropology. I, I, I don't sure. in any way, uh, sure. dismiss or, or 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 minimize the fact that uh, sure. that that the Protestant faith uh, understands the Bible from creation uh, to glorification. Okay. I, I, I'm not diminishing that in Good. any sense. Yeah, I just wanted to click because I was like, well, I don't know yeah. if I would if I would phrase it that way. So so okay, so let's let's get down to the let's use the language of of the debates so that people understand, I mean, Protestants think in these categories of justification by faith alone, you know, the solas of the reformation and things like that. Does the Eastern Orthodox perspective reject a Protestant understanding of justification by faith alone? Yeah. Again, for the reasons that we talked about, uh, I mean, we, we, we believe that we're saved by God's grace. Mm -hmm. um, the emphasis is on, on, on God's grace. So the categories, again, are important if you make the proper distinctions in terms of the language that you're using. 
So we, we, we believe exactly what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 says. We're saved by God's grace. We s- receive that grace through faith, faith properly understood. Mm-hmm. And the salvation uh, that we embrace is progressive. There's a point in time where we experience salvation, but there's also a progressive sense of salvation, and that's, as I said before, why the Orthodox say you're not only saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. See, but is that a distinctive of Eastern Orthodoxy? I've always, I've always understood there is a sense of a now and not yet aspect to the salvation process. So I'm having well, to— Well, that's a good point. There are a lot of Protestants that hold that. Good point. Right. So, so yeah, I, uh, point well taken. But there are a lot of Protestants too that do not hold that. So there's a popular form of Protestantism in which you get people to pray a prayer. Sure. And then they have a card that gets them into heaven and keeps them out of hell, and they can live as a baptized secular humanist uh, right. because they have been saved. Once saved, always saved. They've been saved, and but- therefore. I, but but if I can just jump in there, sure. um, yep. and I agree with you, there are aspects of Protestantism that reflects that, but that's not an essential feature of Protestant theology. Those are, I would say, aberrations of a consistent Protestant um, perspective. So what I guess— Well, and, 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 but, but that's a good point, and let me—before uh, you get to your question, let, let, let me point that out. I, I think this is part of where the problem lies. Uh, there, you, you say you reject Eastern Orthodoxy, but maybe what you're rejecting is a caricature of Eastern Orthodoxy. And when people uh, have arguments with respect to Protestantism, maybe in some cases they're caricaturing Protestantism as opposed to correctly parsing it. Right. And I I definitely think that that happens. And I think that's why conversations like this are are so helpful. Um, But at the same time, some of your explanations, even as you're kind of explaining your view, I don't see a distinct difference except for a couple of things you said between the Protestant view and the Eastern Orthodox view. And so I'm having difficulty identifying what is unique to Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, and I think that we don't agree. We're going to disagree on issues of justification. So I know they're not the same, but what you're saying sounds very uh, Protestant ish kind of. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think you have to go back to what we were talking about earlier on in the conversation. Uh, I think it's really important to, to consider what the church was when the church was young, because there are all kinds of varieties of Protestantism. Uh, from, from, from the time of the great schism that took place in the West between Rome and the Reformers, uh, the, uh, <laughs> what happened within Protestantism is, is, is mind-blowing. Uh, I mean, Luther could not imagine what Zwingli would end up saying, believing, and teaching. Hmm. I mean, you know that. And then Zwingli could not believe later permutations of the Protestant Reformation. And today, one of the big problems from my perspective, and, and quite frankly, one of the reasons I wanted to go to where the church was young i.e. Eastern Orthodoxy, is because of all the winds and waves of doctrine that keep sweeping through the Protestant evangelical world. 
I mean, I remember not long ago when I was really disillusioned with evangelicalism, there were major voices in the evangelical Christian world with big, big platforms saying that you should never ask God for forgiveness. To ask God for forgiveness is like spitting in the face of God. So you have this wind and wave that moves through the church. And, and, and that's what I'm talking you, uh, about. You keep having more and more permutations that muddy the water. Sure. But and I, so you can't see the bottom anymore. So I'm simply saying that Eastern Orthodoxy is going to, when the church was young, and one of the primary issues for me is the Eucharist. When I partake of the Eucharist, I'm partaking of the real presence of Christ, and that is a distinct sure. difference from what you find within uh, Protestantism. Yes, and I do think that, that that's an important difference there. Um, but um, a lot of these waves that you say are going in through the um, the Orthodox Church, I'm sorry, the Evangelical Church, again, those are aberrations that can be yes. corrected with proper biblical application. So though, again, that's not an, an essential feature of Protestantism. You have Well, it is in the sense that everyone becomes their own pope. I mean, everyone becomes their own interpreter. And so you have people that are going to the same Bible and they're interpreting the text in different ways and starting whole movements around their own interpretations. Mm -hmm. This is why I mentioned Zwingli, but you could mention many other people as well. I'm trying not to be confrontational yeah. sure, no, <laughs> on, okay. on, on, on your program, but I mean, you could go to many other. I mean, look, hey, hey, this hard is determinism for me is a huge issue. I grew up in a Calvinist context, and hard determinism for me was a, a, a huge issue. I actually left the church as a very young boy for a long, long time because I couldn't handle the idea of hard determinism. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it just seemed incredible to me to have a sense of theistic fatalism that I heard over and over again in the church that I was part of. And when I asked questions, I didn't get satisfying answers, so I left the church. Well, I found out that becoming a practicing atheist didn't help the uh, the situation much, because if uh, Madonna is merely a material girl living in a material world, her choices are not free. They're fatalistically <laughs> determined by brain chemistry and genetics. So I, I didn't advance the ball a whole lot, but it took me away from the church for sure. a long period of time. So there's this whole issue of robust uh, libertarian freedom as opposed to hard determinism. This is a major issue uh, that that separates uh, the Orthodox, from many strains within the Protestant world as well. So there are many things, you know, for example, the filioque. That's a huge issue because it gets down to the nature of God himself, and virtually every single theological heresy begins with a misconception of the nature of God. So there are big issues to be contended with. All right. Well, we are coming up to the hour. And so I want to give an opportunity for some of the listeners to maybe ask their questions. There's so much here to unpack. There's a lot that I probably would have pressed back on. Uh, we have points of disagreement. Well, you know what? You can do it because, uh, first of all, I got to commend you. Uh, you are exactly as advertised. I've never met you before. I only heard about you. And what I heard about you is true. Uh, we had a conversation you pushed back appropriately with gentleness and with respect. R.C. Sproul would be proud of you. <laughs> well, thank you. 
Uh, well, well, here's the thing that I, I try to emphasize is, uh, like you said, gentleness and respect. I mean, it is possible to engage in discussions that are about the Bible. We can quote the Bible, but we engage in the discussions unbiblically. And I think um, from my side of the of the dividing line, I think my reform fellows should can take a cue from what the Bible says and be more consistent with the manner in which they engage people. That being said, um, you're able to do that without compromising. We disagree, but we had a respectful conversation. I very much appreciate uh, what you had to say. Um, I tell people this all the time. I'm the kind of guy who listens back at my own episodes so that I could um, sometimes as I'm multitasking, um, I, I want to listen to to the conversation again. Um, but let, uh, do you mind if we take like five minutes for no, some no, uh, questions? Fine. And um, um, and do it. heads up, um, I'm going to be having Dr. Tony Costa on, who is a Reformed uh, scholar, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about our conversation and maybe give some uh, context from a Reformed perspective. So we hear we heard the Orthodox perspective. We can hear kind of a Reformed response there. And again, this and there are probably many people, Eli. Uh, you know, I'm a newbie in the Orthodox world, and so there's there's a sense in which I'm probably not the best. Uh, person. I'm still learning. There's so much to learn. I feel like I've been dipped into a treasure chest and I can't find the bottom of it. So I, I, I'm, I'm in the process of learning and absorbing uh, so much of orthodoxy. So there's a lot that I have to uh, learn and there's a fair amount that I have to unlearn as well. Sure, sure. Um, okay, so here's not a, it's not a question, but a statement. But uh, maybe you can unpack that. So EOS, that's the East. That's that's the uh, the online abbreviation of Eastern Orthodox. There's all sorts of strange nicknames. Uh, so uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, do they accept or reject the concept of original sin? Uh, that's a really good question. The Eastern Orthodox do not reject the fact that we are subject to a broken gene as a result of the sin of Adam, but we do not bear the sin of Adam. So we are culpable for our own sin. And of course, there are many passages, uh, in fact, whole chapters of the Bible that bear that out, like Ezekiel chapter 18. Uh, all right, very good. Uh, here's a question, well, I guess a question for me. Who are some Reformed apologists who have good critiques of Orthodox Church? To be perfectly honest, I don't know. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I, I wanted to um, have Hank on. I wanted to kind of learn the perspective for myself since there's so much misunderstanding. Um, and, and here's the thing that I think is very important. It's very easy for, as a Protestant, to tell the critic of Protestantism to say, hey, you don't understand our position. Um, and so we want people to kind of read what our position is. And I think we need to do the same thing if we're going to critique some other perspective. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, all right, let's see here. Um, I have to scroll through. It's not as technologically advanced. How do, how do you go through questions in your... in your? Uh... Well, they come up on a screen. So, you know, people call in, they come up on a screen, and then I... Uh, you know, I'm able to. So basically, what I get is I get the the name of the caller, where they're from, and then there's usually a little thing like they're asking about this, uh, and uh, so then I go to the call and they ask their question. Okay, all right, that that's pretty cool. All right, so you have a, kind of a somewhat confrontational question, but I guess because they want it, they want to get an answer from you. Okay, as they're listening here, Eli's asking a question that's not being answered directly. Okay, uh, Hank, why do you deny sola fide? I guess from a Protestant perspective, as we understand it, what, why do you deny it? And you know, why don't you unpack that for us? Well, I, I don't. I, I, I try to do that. I mean, I, I think what's important to recognize is that we are saved by God's grace 
the instrument by which we receive that grace is faith properly understood. But the, the point that I made is a point that comes directly from the Scriptures. Uh, so my, uh, my answer to that question would simply be to quote uh, James chapter 2, which uh, has James saying, so you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then he concludes by saying, for as the body without the spirit is dead, uh, so faith without works is dead. Uh, so I think part of the discussion is, again, going back to unpacking or scaling the language barrier because the ideas here uh, are, are multifaceted and, and there's a different perspective in terms of not only terminology but the meaning that's poured into the words. So words are not univocal, they're equivocal. They're, it's not just the word you use but the meaning that you pour into the word. Sure. Okay. Thank you for that. Last question, because we are now at the five uh, five minutes, the, the one hour mark, and that was our agreed upon time. So uh, someone's asking a question. Could well, you got to do the Bible Answer Man broadcast. So. That, that's right. You got other things to do, right? Yeah. It's not, you're, yeah. you're not a busy man. Um, could you have Hank explain what he's learned about the Eastern Orthodox position on human nature, particularly the noose? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that would have been a great thing to, to get into. I mean, that's uh, the, the seat of a human being is 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 transcendently important and yeah i i mean i in the conversation we didn't get to a lot of that but but i think the point here that's important in the question is that anthropology is very very important uh and eastern orthodox view of human anthropology and other views there are differences that that bear discussion mm. All right. Well, that was the last question, folks. Thank you so much for listening in. Um, if you have further questions or any uh, desire, any follow-up questions to be addressed, you could email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. I also will be having Tony Costa to come on to talk a little bit more about this. Um, Hank Hanegraaff, president of CRI, um, the Bible Answer Man, we thank you so much for uh, taking the time. I really enjoyed this conversation. As I said before, I'm going to go back and listen. Um, and, um, you know, I'm busy as it is, but Darn, I now have a new topic I have to throw myself into. <laughs> so, um, again, well, you know, that's the whole thing. I mean, we're learning together. I mean, I, you, I, I've always said that uh, I don't want to stay static. I want to continue to learn and grow and develop. And, and, and I believe truth really matters. Uh, I do believe, as a title of my newest book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More, uh, I, I believe that we have to go beyond logical truth propositions to a living relationship with the Lord of the universe. So I, I, I want to continue to learn and conversations like this uh, uh, certainly help in the process. Well, I certainly appreciate your willingness to come on and um, I wish you the best in terms of health. And um, if I can just nudge a little jokingly, we'll, we'll pray for you, brother, to come back to the fold. <laughs> um, but uh, seriously, there, there are those dividing lines that are very important and I don't want to... Um, discourage people from looking into these issues. I think they're very important and I think open discussion does need to happen. And so, um, Hank, I do appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, folks for listening, thank you for your questions. Thank you for your time for listening in. Um, that is it for this episode. Until next time, take care and God bless. Bye-bye. 
Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.